0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Great leaders know that creating a culture of communication doesn't mean necessarily constant transmission it means much more hello i'm mark rutland welcome to the leader's notebook i'm so delighted that you've joined me for this episode of the leader's notebook i'm in the middle of a series on relaunch my new york times best-selling book and at the end of this podcast someone is going to tell you how to get a deep reduction a a coupon that will get you that book at a great reduced price, and I want you to have it. I want you to get multiple copies, in fact, and get them for friends and associates and colleagues. This book uh, that sold so well and still selling, as a matter of fact, uh, Relaunch, is subtitled How to Stage an Organizational Comeback. I pray that uh, whatever kind of comeback you're in need of, that can be a personal comeback, a an organizational comeback, leadership, a turnaround of any kind. I pray that this book will be a great help to you and an inspiration. It is tough sledding. I just need to be honest with you. I think that the two hardest things in leadership are a startup and a turnaround. Of the two, I believe that a turnaround is harder. Because in a turnaround, you're obviously dealing with previous mistakes, problems, challenges, things that have gotten massaged into the deep tissue of the organization. So there's before you can get a lot of things right into the organization, you've got to get a lot of things wrong out. So that doubles your effort. and And I believe that a relaunch of some kind is hugely strenuous leadership undertaking. So I hope you'll get this book, I want you to have it, and I hope that, as I say, you'll get multiple copies and get them to your friends and colleagues, maybe that you want your entire staff to read it and discuss it together. Now we're further into the series, and so you may be concerned that you missed all the previous four, five, six of them, uh, but don't worry. I try to make each one of these episodes stand alone in its own right, but part of a greater series. So I want you to be able to get the whole series. They're archived. Listen to the whole thing. I hope they'll be uh, tantalizing to you that then as soon as you hear them, you say, I've got to have this book and I've got to get it for all my friends, but that each one of the episodes is a standalone as this one will be. So if you haven't heard any of the previous episodes on relaunch, don't worry. This one today is just for you. Now let's get right into it. The issue is creating a positive and healthy atmosphere, a culture of communication. I know this. Leadership that is self-absorbed, isolated, insulated from upward communication is going to sooner or later is going to be expensive leadership. It's going to cost you. Not just can you transmit to everyone, can you transmit well? but can you receive the information that you need to from people that are closer to the ground than you are? So often the discussion of institutional reality, which I've talked about multiple times in the previous episodes, is discussed from the assumption that you, the leader, that you have a clearer view of reality than the people that you're leading. And that reality check um, may be true That in that you will see it and communicate it better than others in the organization. But I also want to say that there is uh, the need for you to receive institutional reality from those in your constituency. Uh, I want to give you a cautionary tale today, a story that will reveal how important it is for the leader to create and sustain a culture in which the followers, employees, constituents, whomever, feel free to give you the reality check when you need it. Certainly, you have to be able to communicate reality. That's that's part of leadership. You have to tell your constituency, your followers, your congregants, your board members, you have to be able to tell them the truth without freaking them out. You don't want them to... Uh, dive down the well suicidally, but at the same time, you have to be able to give them a positive and yet realistic appraisal of the situation. Like the spies that went into the Holy Land. Some came back and they all reported the facts. They all reported the facts, the good spies and the bad spies. They all reported the facts. It was the extrapolation of those facts that made the difference between good spies and bad spies. The bad spies said, there are giants in there and we look like grasshoppers in their sight and if we go up against them, we're 100% going to lose. The good spies said, yes, there are giants in there. They didn't deny the institutional reality. But they said, we are well able to overcome them. With God on our side, we we can win this. Now, how do your people tell you institutional reality you have a vision a dream a concept a plan that you communicate you transmit vertically downward to your staff and your followers and your executives how do they respond to you i'm telling you that that is one of the most important issues in whether or not you receive all the information that you need to so here's the story early in the 17th century England, Spain, Holland, and even tiny little Portugal had established themselves among the major naval powers of the world. Europe was a community of powerful naval armadas, but Sweden was not among the great powers on the sea. They had some of the single-deck ships that were typically found in the Baltic, but none of the great men of war that prowled the oceans. Even in the limited arena of the Baltic, the Swedish Navy was nothing special. They had suffered several defeats at the hands of the Polish Navy and just as many defeats at the hands of bad weather in the 1620s. So the King of Sweden, one Gustav Adolphus, decided that it was time that he established Sweden as a major naval power. He had enjoyed a great deal of military and a political success in his first decade on the Swedish throne. He was winning land battles, and he was becoming something of a prominent figure in, in geopolitics in Europe. But he still longed for that powerful navy. His competitiveness, his, his envy of the other naval powers in Europe drove him. And so in 1626, he commissioned the building of a warship that he wanted to be the greatest ship of his era. He certainly wanted it to be the most magnificent vessel in the Swedish Navy, but frankly, of all the navies of Europe, it was to be named the Vasa. King Gustav Adolphus' ego demanded that the ship be the biggest and the best armed. Above all, though, he also wanted it to be the most beautiful. He added to its outside great statues, other heavy uh, carved ornamentation. The Vasa became a work of art. I have seen it in the Vasa Ship Museum in Sweden, and it is incredibly gorgeous. A ship as art, as a work of art. He added a second deck of extremely heavy guns, a a lower level of gun ports that could be opened. And what he wanted was the greatest, most heavily armed military vessel in Europe. But he also wanted it to be beautifully decorated and huge, the largest, most militarily powerful with the greatest ordnance and the most beautiful ship, a trifecta Of demands, beautiful, powerfully armed, and large. The result, however, was a terribly top heavy vessel. Gustav Adolphus may have been a good king, but he was a terrible engineer and he didn't listen to engineers that were good engineers. The ballast, which would have been sufficient for the original design, was no match for the weight that was added above the waterline every time the king said, I want more, more decoration, more statue, more guns. When the Vasa was nearing completion, in fact, pretty much completed, a Swedish engineer began to have serious doubts about her seaworthiness. He did one night what was called at that time a run test. A run test is exactly what it sounds like. He just got all the sailors, 30, 40, 50 sailors, on the top deck with their back against the gunwale on one side and ordered them to run at top speed to the other side, back and forth, back and forth, to test the stability of the ship. After only three trips back and forth across the deck, the ship was rocking so violently that the engineer halted the test for fear that he would capsize the vessel right there in the shipyard. The structural problems could be fixed. The lower-level gun ports could be sealed up. The keel could be deepened. More ballast could be added. But it all would take time. That would mean a significant delay in the ship's announced launch. And the king had made it clear that he was in a hurry to get the Vasa on the seas. The Thirty Years' War had been raging for 10 years, believing that his new ship, the Vasa, was a game-changer. The king wanted it in the fray, on the ocean, as soon as possible. And if it wasn't, he was going to know why. Even though it was obvious that the Vasa was a disaster waiting to happen, Nobody had the courage to tell the king. So here's what was going to happen. They said, if you fire the guns on one side of the ship, the recoil will tip the ship so that water will run in the gun ports on the other side because it's not stable enough for that kind of a rocking motion. The king was out of the country when the launch was to be announced and and carried out though he did send frequent letters expressing the urgency with which he desired to see the great Vasa on the open sea. On August the 10th, 1628, the Vasa launched right on schedule. King Gustav Adolphus was still out of the country, but a large crowd, including ambassadors from a number of European countries, came to see the launch of the great new ship, the greatest, most beautiful, most powerful naval vessel in Europe. With much fanfare, the Vasa left the slip and sailed out into Stockholm Harbor. The sailors and passengers, there were many passengers, actually some of the families of the ship's officers and Swedish dignitaries were all on deck. Bands were playing, they waved from the deck. It was beautiful weather, a slight breeze just to fill the sails. The ship had not yet traveled a nautical mile. When a slight gust of wind caught the sails, the one gust pushed the Vasa dangerously toward its port side. The sailors scrambled. The ship managed to right itself. But no sooner was it upright again than a second gust knocked it again. Water rushed into the open gun ports. Within minutes, Sweden's great naval hope was 100 feet below the surface of the Stockholm Harbor. More than 30 people died. All because King Adolphus created a negative atmosphere drenched in ego so much that no one dared tell him the bad news. If your subordinates don't feel free to tell you the bad news, you will suffer for it. Gustav Adolphus no doubt thought of himself as communicating well in the weeks prior to the Vasa disaster. He communicated what he wanted. He communicated how he wanted things added, changed on the ship. He transmitted well and frequently. There are records of his letters. He sent these communiques expressing his wishes. No one misunderstood what the king wanted. The problem was that he created a culture in which no one could shoot straight with him. He only communicated the institutional reality that was important to him. He did not create a culture where the institutional realities he didn't want to hear could ever reach his ears. Create a culture in which your subordinates are able to say to you, you're going to sink this ship. If you can't hear that, you're already in trouble. That doesn't mean you have to do everything your subordinates tell you to do. You're still the decider. As George W. Bush used to say, you're free to say, I hear you, but I still think I'm right in this situation. And if it turns out I'm wrong, I'll be the first one to admit it. One of his famous quotes. In 1961, Marine archaeologists raised the Vasa from the bottom of Stockholm Harbor. Since 1988, it has been housed in its own museum, which I have visited multiple times. One of the most popular tourist attractions in Stockholm. It is a magnificent ship. I, I've never seen anything like it. In fact, there never was anything like it in the history of sailing vessels. The problem is, it is also a monument. To the danger of poor leadership. The issue is that if you can't create an atmosphere where you can hear from people, no one will talk to you. If you just shoot one messenger because he has a bad message, you'll never get another one. So the authority that the leader holds has to be tempered with the humility to understand that somebody in this organization, probably somebody further down, somebody closer to the reality, understands something you don't and may have information, without which you have the possibility of tipping the whole ship. I believe that there may be people in your organization, in fact, I'm confident of it, people in your organization, an associate pastor, a vice president, a a youth pastor, a, a director of research and development, somebody further down in your business or organization or ministry that senses that a certain direction or a certain decision is going to be a dangerous one. They are not rebellious. They're not nitpicky or critical. They're not bad people. They are genuinely concerned that a decision is being made, not an evil decision, not a wicked decision, but a decision that is ill-informed or uninformed, has a a high possibility of causing damage. The challenge they face is, who tells the king? How do I get that message vertically up? All the transmission has been vertically down. I know exactly what the people above me want. I know what they want. How do I tell them what they want? Or how do I tell them I believe what they want is a mistake? That will only happen if the If senior leadership has worked hard to create a culture of listening as well as transmitting, of positive affirmation, of being able to say to underlings, to to subordinates, thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for telling me what you believe. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do what they want. You are the leader. And there can come that moment where you say, I hear you. I'm listening to you, but I believe you're wrong. And I'm going to go forward with this. If I'm wrong, I promise you, I'll call you back and admit to you and say, all right, I was a donkey, I made the wrong decision, and I appreciate the fact that you tried to tell me the truth, but I'm proceeding right now with what I think is best. But at least you've honored them, at least you've heard them, at least you've received and validated not just the message, but the process of the message. That's what's really important that there is a way to get information from the ground level, from the grassroots level into the king's office. How do you get the message to the king? So you, you have to work hard to create that atmosphere. You have to send the message all the time. Tell me the truth. In executive staff meetings, at a mega church and two substantial Christian universities I constantly communicated verbally I I tried to send the message over and over again here's what I think I want to do please can you talk me out of it can you tell me why I'm about to make a bad decision I actually empowered them tell me what I'm doing wrong here I believe that the ego the desperate pride that the king of Sweden had to produce the, the biggest, fanciest, most uh, expensive, most powerfully armed naval vessel. His competitiveness drove him to make a bad decision, but his unwillingness to hear from people below him created an atmosphere that was conducive to disaster, not just a failure, but disaster. Are there people in your organization that long to tell you to get the message somehow up the line of communication from them, you're about to make a mistake here. Or even if not a great mistake, there is a better way to do this. There's simply a more efficient way. There's a more financially feasible way. There's a better way to handle this. I want to say to you that creating that atmosphere sends the signal to your subordinates and to your constituents I don't claim to know everything. I'm telling you, I know I don't know everything. I'm the leader. I'm the pastor. I'm the president. I'm the chairman of the board, whatever it is. I'm that person that has to make the ultimate decision, and the buck is going to stop on my desk, but I need to hear from you. Is there an atmosphere, a culture that is extant in your organization that is conducive to people transmitting upward? Could someone go to their superior and say, we're making a mistake here. This is not the best way to do this. Could they go to their superior and upward? Could that message ever reach your desk? And how would you respond if you heard it? That the plan that you've announced may have a flaw in it. Can your ego deal with that? If it can't sooner or later, the egotistical, isolated leader, cut off from vertical leadership upward to him, messages upward to him, that leader will eventually launch the Vasa ship and his dreams and hopes will be shattered and sunk to the bottom of the harbor. May God himself guide us to create an atmosphere of humility and grace where the flow of information is not always downward, but upward as well. I pray that this has been useful to you. I pray that God will give you the kind of leadership, positive, hopeful, visionary leadership that can also listen to the people below you that may know a better way to do this. God bless you. Now stay tuned. I want you to know how to get this New York Times bestseller relaunch. God bless you. Until we meet again, this is Mark Rutland, and this is The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Relaunch, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code Relaunch to receive $7 off of each book. To order by the case, call us toll free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.